important is it to win a case as a, a lawyer? So I, I know this might be a dumb question, but as a non-lawyer, I would think that every lawyer is going out there to battle hard for their clients to win, and they keep track of their wins as part of their stats. And is that correct? Is that a thing? Um, you guys all, many lawyers know each other. It's kind of a small community. So mm -hmm. what, what does that look like in Edmonton? Access to Justice. I'm your host, Heather Malarick at Merrick Law. My co-host is Evan Clark at Kahane Law. Hi, Evan. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? Good. We missed you last week. I know. I was, uh, I was sad to miss it myself. How was it? Terrible? It was, Good? It was... Um, well, you're going to have to watch the episode, I guess. All right. That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're joined today, as always, by our very special guest, Kim McDonald of McDonald Advisory. How are you doing, Kim? Hey, Heather. Hey, Evan. Uh, doing great today. Can't wait to tackle today's episode. And uh, thank you so much for having me. Great. Always great to have you. Kim's a financial advisor and insurance advisor with Raymond James Limited. We're a Canadian podcast with a mission to educate Canadians about the law. We interview experts in law, mental health, and finance, focusing on topics that create the greatest barriers to entry into the justice system. You can find us on YouTube, on our A2J podcast channel, and online at a2jpodcast.com. So without further ado, I'm very pleased to welcome today's guest, Joanna Waldy. Hi, Joanna. Hello. <laughs> Joanna is a family lawyer with Briar McKay. Um, she graduated from the U of A in 2008. Um, with uh, 2012. Oh, I'm sorry. Your bachelor in 2008. <laughs> oh, and, and I'll from, let you take the reins. <laughs> and from law school in 2012. What did you get your undergrad degree in? Um, I did a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology and Sociology. So basically, give me a degree oh. that I can do something with at the end of the day. So oh, yeah. I have a similar psychology and English background. So yeah. yeah, yeah. I was trying to go for a Spanish um, minor until I r figured out that you actually needed to like write a critical paper on Spanish literature. And I was like, I'm out. Yeah, so. That's true. I, I did a double major. Spanish and Hispanic studies was one of them. And linguistics was the other. And yeah, I did have to write papers in Spanish about Spanish literature. Right. Well, so. you did better than me. <laughs> Bullet dodged for you, Joanna. I speak Spanish food mostly, which seems to get me by. So that's good. <laughs> Um, so Joanna's here to talk to us today about family law. She's a registered collaborative family lawyer, um, but she also does litigation and appears in court when alternative to, alternatives to court aren't available or appropriate for the parties. I understand you also do a little bit of law in some of the other areas that are related, like real estate, wills and estates, and a little bit of estate litigation, which is interesting. Too. Um, yeah, I see you have something here about the purchase sale of a two for one pizza joint as well as in your professional corporate background. It is. Yep. It's a bit of a rite of passage at the forum that I used to practice at, which was to, 
um, work on the sale or purchase of a two for one pizza and pasta restaurant. So in my past life, learning how to do wills, estates, corporate commercial work, I definitely did um, one of those on my own. So pizza law, you can add it to the, to the resume. Yeah. Um, And for some reason it's very specialized two for one pizza pasta. (laughs) It's got, you gotta have the pasta on there as well. And they can't just be, you know, some other kind of deal. It's got to be two for one. Right. Was there any pizza involved throughout that transaction? Yes, there was a bit of a tradition at the firm that whenever you closed on the purchase of a restaurant, you had to take the firm to eat there. So sometimes that worked out really well because we got to go and eat a bunch of really great food. And sometimes it was, you know, a pretty painful hour, but I feel like you should have gone before the sale closed. So you're with the guys that know what they're doing. That probably would have been a good idea, but then you wouldn't be dining for your clients necessarily. So good point. anyway, (laughs) yes. (laughs) Cool. So Joanna, you and I know each other through the collaborative means, but I'm, and I know you and Kim know each other that way as well, but I understand you also have some other bit of history with one another. Is that right? Yes. Um, mostly Kim running by me at very insane speeds on an ultimate Frisbee field. <laughs> I laughed so hard thinking about that because I had no understanding of strategy. So my strategy was to just run really fast because I didn't actually know what I was doing. So Joanna and I are national champion ultimate Frisbee players, if you guys um wanted to know uh we are a championship uh level uh athletes and um, it was just really funny because that team, they had like a few core people that pretty much did the entire winning of everything. And then the rest of us were just kind of like running around. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I have a gold medal, but like, no thanks to me sitting on the bench, like for the majority of the tournament and just like cheering people on. But <laughs> oh, and I'm pretty sure I was running in the wrong direction at one point. Like I just like, it's just funny because that's yeah. Joanna and I met on the ultimate pitch. We were there like in terms of like professionals, uh, there's a couple lawyers on the team. Um, and, uh, and, and I was kind of one of the financial service professionals on there. The rest were just sort of like hardcore athletes who were like physiotherapists and doctors. And they knew a lot about the body and running and all this kind of stuff. And the rest of us are like, yeah, we know like corporate stuff. So just put us on the bench and we'll just clap for you when you get a point. Pretty much. Every member of the team's important, you guys. (laughs) Yeah. So mostly I know Kim as a blur running by me when we would play outside of our national championship team. We would sometimes play recreationally on Tuesdays and Thursdays, but on different teams. And it was never fun to cover her as a defender. So. (laughs) Oh dear. That's hilarious. Yeah. I had, I had no clue, but it was fun. I mean, sometimes you need an activity where you're just going to get the let out and kill a couple calories along the way. And uh, like for me anyway, that was what I was out there for. Um, I know some people studied the sport and knew what they were doing, but, um, yeah, that wasn't, that wasn't me. So Joanna and I go back a far away and we've had some fun together. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Well, that's, that's fun. That's a, that's a good connection. I like that. (laughs) Um, 
So I think we've titled our episode today, Courts and Conflict. So um, I don't know where you want to start, Joanna. Do you want to start talking about court or the conflict or do they go together? What do you, what do you think? Well, you generally don't get into court unless you have a conflict with somebody, I guess. That's a good point. (laughs) Whether it be in the family law context or dispute between neighbors or, you know, disputes over money or anything like that. But you generally don't get into the court unless you have conflict that needs Uh to be resolved. So they tend to go hand in hand. Good point. What I understand is court is the most efficient quickest best way to resolve any conflict yes if tv leads us to believe anything it's that you can serve somebody and get into a courtroom the next day so (laughs) and usually have a trial by the end of that week or like the following week right usually yeah yeah you're in front of the judge like you know sometimes within hours so and sometimes you win sometimes you lose but most of the time you win great especially if you're the best looking person in the room yeah (laughs) so yeah yeah, but no, in reality, it is not the most efficient way to deal with um, your disputes, particularly in light of this um, pandemic that we call COVID-19. So, so why, why is that? Why does COVID make a difference? I think um, it all stemmed from the courts pretty much shutting their doors um, back in what was it, March 2019, they just said, you know, we can't really handle this influx of people and we don't know how to social distance and um, we're going to set up some mechanisms that protect people's claims and if they don't go into court and we're just going to shutter our doors for a couple months and Mm. that really set, um, I think, a lot of things back in terms of trying to keep up with the backlog once the courts reopened and... um, trying to ensure that the staff at the courthouse were able to still work remotely, but still be able to process documents. And I think now a year and a half, almost later, we're still catching up on those couple months of closure. So, and not being able to even appear in person on some occasions. So. And there were some, uh, there was a delay anyway, before COVID to get to court and those closures just kind of made things, made that all a little bit longer. Yeah. Yeah. With a shortage of judges, a shortage of clerks and prior to COVID. And that's only been made worse by the court just deciding to shut itself down for a couple of months. So. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned before that like real life court doesn't look like it does on TV, but like where in your experience, how do you see people coming in and like having misconceptions? Like, can you point to some things that are really different between real life, (laughs) real life court and uh, TV court? I think like Evan hit the nail on the head for one thing. It's that TV kind of gives you the expectation that trials are over and done with within a couple of months of something happening, right? So something happens on Law and Order and Olivia Benson arrives and investigates a heinous crime. And then with, you know, in two months, they're at trial trying to determine whether or not this guy's guilty, which I don't know a whole ton about the criminal context, but I know definitely speaking to my criminal law friends, that's definitely not true. You know, it can sometimes be a year or two or sometimes three before the person actually gets their trial day. Um, so I think, you know, if you kind of extrapolate that into our context as, um, family lawyers, there's often clients who think that you can just get into court and the next day or two, right. So, um, just file your documents and get there and you get your day in court in front of the judge. But 
that's generally not how things work, mm-hmm. particularly in light of all these new mechanisms that the courthouse has set up um, in response to COVID-19. And then we've got, um, the, I think the other big misconception is that, you know, TV is based on American courts. And we're in Canada here where we're based on a system of um, having, I think, wearing the robes for one thing, not being able to stand up and make a big soliloquy and walk in front of the jury box and stand up and do whatever we want. So the court itself right. just looks a lot different because we're standing at a podium for hours on end, sometimes making our dis- our submissions. So mm. that's another big difference. Whoa, Can I tell whoa, whoa. you the one thing that bugs me? Yeah. <laughs> no, go ahead, Kim. And then we'll talk about the one thing that bugs me. I'll make a note of that, Joanna. We'll come back to it. <laughs> I didn't know you guys couldn't didn't go go up and give your opening remarks and your closing remarks. I didn't I didn't know that that you can't do that in Canada. You guys you guys are are pinned to the ground in your little box. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're, you're pretty, I, I guess it depends on your venue, right? But you're li- pretty limited in time. You're limited by, yeah, by procedure. Like you don't just sort of like show up at a trial. And <laughs> Well, I mean, I think part of it too is uh, everything's recorded. And so the microphones they use are, you know, darn, they're not, they don't, I don't think they're really designed to pick up the entire room. So you stay at the podium because that's where the mic is. I think that's like practically speaking, the reason why I think, I think theoretically I, you probably could walk pace in front of the jury if you wanted. Maybe. Yeah. 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 It would probably it'd be weird. <laughs> would be weird. Yeah. If you had a jury. <laughs> yeah. That's another thing. If you had a jury. Yeah. <laughs> but I also think there's kind of that invisible barrier between you as counsel and the judge that you're really not supposed to cross without permission right so mm. but yeah you're well, that right to... in tv in tv that you know, they're always saying like, permission to approach the bench right do you say yeah. that joanna never once in my life and have the judge cover the microphones so nobody yeah. can hear them never happened has no. it happened to you heather no no or they're always meeting in judges chambers too they're always going to the back room have you noticed that i've never I've never done yeah. that. Our judges' chambers are public. Right. True. Yeah. yeah. True. It would be effective. Mm-hmm. Can, I, can we meet in, your, in chambers, Your Honor? Uh, that's where we are. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, there's no side conversations going on. <laughs> no, it's true. That's but. amazing. I thought you guys would be able to caucus in some capacity with the judge about some, you know, a sensitive topic no you can't do that okay no the only thing i can think of it would be like pre-trial stuff right where you might have a judge who's helping you with process and saying like this is what you're going to do next and you're having meetings with them but they're not they're never the person that's hearing the case then and deciding it um so yeah that's i've never even really thought about that but that's another big difference isn't it yeah, that you've never actually been called into get into my chambers and we'll talk about this. Yeah. Because most you, of those discussions would be on the record and recorded. <laughs> so exactly. Yeah. 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 Hmm. So what really bugs you, Joanna? Yeah. What really bugs me? It always really bugs me when um you get the glimpse into the lawyer's office, like on suits, and there's no files on their desk, and all they're working on is a 12-inch MacBook. 
you know, like that's their computer. <laughs> and then when they do high, hand them a file folder, it's like, you know, just the letter size file folder with one sheet of paper in it. Right. When in reality, it's like, you know, you're kind of making a fort out of all the files on your desk. And some of them are like three file folders big. And the more screens you have as a lawyer, like the more glamorous you kind of are. Like if you've got four screens set up, like you're really made it, wow. made it yeah. as a lawyer. Yeah. Like, I don't know any lawyer who exclusively works off of a 12 inch MacBook. I, I did it for a while, not a MacBook, even a PC laptop. And I managed to do it for a couple months, but that's all I could handle. Yeah. So sure. I really have a hard time believing like somebody of Harvey Specter's like level would just work on a MacBook, but I don't know. Harvey doesn't do any computer stuff. Okay. He's more of, he just gets out there and gets it done, Joanna. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> meets meets with Mike Ross at the hot dog cart where Mike Ross hands him the folder with one sheet of paper in it. That's right. And that's everything he needs. He this is what we need to win our case. Right. Close it. Yeah. <laughs> He's good looking enough that he just wins every case, right? That's the rule that we mentioned before, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How important is it to win a case as a, a lawyer? So I know this might be a dumb question, but as a non-lawyer, I would think that every lawyer is going out there to battle hard for their clients to win, and they keep track of their wins as part of their stats. And is that correct? Is that a thing? Um, you guys all, many lawyers know each other. It's kind of a small community. So mm -hmm. what, what does that look like in Edmonton? I don't think I've ever tried. <laughs> I guess the one thing about family law to keep in mind is that there's rarely a win, you know? Yeah. Like, there's rarely just complete success on your application or your issue that goes towards trial when you get there. You know, you often get not the exact outcome you were asking for. So is that a win? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, perhaps in like the criminal side of things you can see like okay you know getting someone off of the charges and not guilty sure that's a win but yeah i mean like i, I haven't done any trials i i only do like the occasional hearing and even in those it's usually a mixed bag rarely do you get like absolutely everything you're asking for yeah and even when you do i don't like i just find and i'd love to hear your input on this joanna I, I find generally court to be a very unsatisfying experience, no matter what the outcome is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And part of the reason I feel that way is um, I don't like how much my clients have to pay me in order for me to go. And then the result is just like, I, the result just doesn't match what they're paying for. If you know what I mean? Like, it, like yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I hear what you're saying in terms of, you're going to pay a lawyer to draft some documents, get them filed with the court, sit in court. And we're, if we're even just talking about not doing a trial, just going in for, you know, what we call like a, a chambers application or, or like a docket appearance or something like that, you know, and they're sitting in court for hours, or we used to sit in court for hours before we were appearing in court by video. And at the end of the day, sometimes you would just end up having to come back on a later date or, you would get an order that just put a bandaid on the problems and mm -hmm. um, wouldn't actually give you like any sort of final resolution. So definitely can be an unsatisfying outcome, I think, for some clients in terms of, 
it didn't actually give them the relief they were seeking, or even if it did, it was only temporary or something along those lines. Yeah. And, and often if there is like a clear winner and loser, like, especially when there's children involved, usually it's not a real win because now you've just really pissed off the other person that you have to still work with. And now they need some time to like get over everything that just happened. And they, they spent a bunch of money and didn't get the result they want. Their pride is hurt, et cetera, et cetera. It's a lose. Mm-hmm. So what is it like for going to a trial though? And, and I would love to hear from your perspective, like how much can clients expect to be paying in lawyer's fees for the average quote unquote trial? I think the average trial, you're kind of paying a lawyer for every day that they're going to appear in trial. I think most lawyers say you're also going to pay me for a full day of preparing for that trial, right? So I spend eight hours on your matter in a trial. So expect me to do eight hours of prep in advance, right? So you're looking at, in that case, sometimes two days for a one-day trial, which is, I would say, relatively common in some family law matters. You know, you're dealing with, say, one parenting issue that can be dealt with in a day. You're looking at two days worth of prep work. And then who knows what happens in terms of um, working up to there, right? So did you have to do applications? Did you have to question the other party Uh you know uh so when you're talking about trials costing 20 grand it's not a huge shock and it's something that I mean I don't think I could afford to pay a lawyer and I am a lawyer to fight out some of these issues for me right so it's insanely expensive to go through with a day of trial yeah and that's it's very on point because that creates the title of this podcast the issue, right? How do you, how does a normal person access justice when it takes thousands and thousands of dollars to go to trial? And this specifically, people may not understand, may not realize this in keeping in the family law context, but if there, if you don't agree about spousal support or you don't agree about property division, there's only one place that that can be resolved. And that's a trial. Right. Yeah. And you're, it's interesting. Like, Um, I was once sitting in a judicial dispute resolution with Judge Hancock in provincial court. And he's, you know, they kind of, judges will usually give like a little spiel to the parties about the reason that they're in this judicial dispute resolution and what their hope is, right? And Judge Hancock kind of said, you know, I've, court is really strange because you're giving me this much, I'm holding my fingers out, (laughs) um, you know, this much information about your life and about your family. And you're expecting me to make a decision as though I'm the expert and I'm Mm. not. And when in reality, you're the experts on what's good for your family and what has worked for your family in the past and on your family history. And so you're best equipped to make that decision is I think what I'm some, I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what he was trying to tell these parties is it's better for you to try to come to a decision together here in this forum than to give all your power to a judge who really only has a teeny tiny bit of information. And if you have lawyers, they're providing you with very selected information that they think is going to be to their client's advantage and not necessarily the full picture. So, um, I mean, to your point, you're saying that you can only really get a resolution going to a trial on spousal support or property division, and you're going to get a decision from somebody who has no idea of your family history, right? Or is giving their own interpretation of your family history based on what the evidence is presented to them so Uh 
especially in the family law context, it's a really interesting idea to say that we're going to trust this individual to make the decision that's best. <laughs> so do judges get time in advance of a trial to do some reading? Because some, sometimes people have very complex issues. I think a judge might be maybe a little bit intimidated at times to come into a certain case if there's tons of information and it's, it's you know, there's 200 layers to it. Is there any prep? I think they get like a copy of some of the documents in advance. And I know some judges have access to um, like research staff if they need to research like a unique issue in the law or get some ideas of what judges have decided previously. But often they're coming in very fresh um, to the issues. They get a very limited amount of information and they're just processing this evidence as they're hearing it and mm -hmm. making a decision as they go. And maybe sometimes they'll run back and call their research clerk and say, hey, can you look up this issue for me? I've got a 15 minute break. And, you know, that's kind of what they're working with. So, yeah. And the court is really relying on the lawyers, I think, to present that evidence in an efficient way so that they can be digesting it and making sense of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And for the lawyers to really do the legwork in terms of if this is a unique issue, here's some resources that might help you uh, make your decision. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 Which is why we kind of say, you know, that at least one day of prep for that one day of trial, because we want to make sure the judges get all the information they need to make a good decision. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, because, I mean, if, you're, if your preparations and what you've submitted to the court aren't complete, then that's probably just going to make the time of the trial longer, more complicated, and possibly, um, you, you know, go not your way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like if they've done their prep and they think they know what's going on, and then you add like a little extra thing on the day of, that might not work out the best. No. Although I've been in trials where you think that you're, it's going full steam ahead and your witness says, just won't answer the question you want them to answer. <laughs> <laughs> and then you ask it six ways, six different ways, and they're still not answering it the way you want. And you just got to kind of deal with it. So, yeah. yeah. Well, to that point, there's so many little variables like that too. Once you get to the day of like things that just don't always go to plan and don't come out the way you expect them to. So yeah, it's, it's a crapshoot <laughs> or it can be <laughs> for sure. Mm -hmm. I always tell clients that I've sometimes gone into court like thinking we've got a real stinker here, but we'll mm. just try our best. And then I've gotten what I wanted. And then I've gone in thinking like, man, I've got like a slam dunk here. And then I've just completely gotten, you know, basically slapped across the face, I think, by right. the judge's words. So it can be really hard to predict. And even your own lawyer's assessment of the situation can sometimes be completely off. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, on TV, another thing that I notice on these court shows is uh, uh, truth-telling seems to be an, an art for people. So maybe people coming in aren't giving their lawyers maybe all the information or they're uh, taking some uh, like liberties with the information. That must be really uncomfortable for lawyers in court to encounter, um, you know, some, you know, some inaccurate information that their own clients have given them. 
Yeah. Or I think even sometimes with family law clients, it can just be information that they just forgot or chose not to disclose. Right. So nothing quite like being surprised. That happens in negotiation too. And I find it exceptionally annoying because, you know, and it, it makes, makes me look bad when I'm, I think I know what's going on. And then I find out from the other side, something else. And I ask my client, is that right? And they're like, yeah, it, it's never helpful. So, you know, to tell your lawyers everything. True. And you, I think you'd also be surprised to be the amount of stuff that, you know, your lawyers can just kind of help you get out in front of. Right. So, you know, I like to smoke some pot on the weekend occasionally. Okay, great. Let's, you know, put that on the record. Um, so the judge knows that, you know, occasionally you do like to smoke some pot and the judge is probably not going to even blink twice, but if we're, you know, presented with all of a sudden this evidence that you're a pot addict, pot. Yeah. yeah, he's addicted to it. You know, mm-hmm. it's a lot more difficult to try to circumvent that later on. So, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. being honest with your lawyer. <laughs> For, for the most part, we're very non-judgmental people, I would say, or we keep it all in here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Plus, I mean, Heather, I, I'm sure there's not a lot of things you haven't heard by now. You know, I feel that way, but people are all unique. They all have different situations. So, you know, that's kind of part of what I love about this job is you're always like learning something new. <laughs> but certainly that is not my job to judge people. That's what I, I say. And that's what I truly believe. I'm here to listen to you and what's going on with you and give you legal advice based on what's going on with your situation as best as I can gauge that. So I'm not there to give anybody a lecture or decide about what choices they're making in their lives. I'm there to give them some legal guidance. Yeah. And, uh, you can't hear Joanna's nonverbal cues, but she is, uh, agreeing with everything that Heather's saying. And I, and I feel the same way. Like, um, and I, I'm mentioning that because I think most lawyers that you're going to come, especially family law lawyers, like we, we get it. It's messy like dealing with family law issues, there's emotions involved, people do things. Um, and, uh, it, we can help you so much better if you just tell us everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause I, I mean, um, I've had clients that they're not sure, or sometimes they like kind of let something slip that they didn't want to. And like, I'm like, Oh, you need to tell me more about that right now, because that's important. I need to understand that. So, so I can give you advice about, you know, whether you need to do something else to make sure that it doesn't uh, prejudice you as we like to say. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe from a legal perspective, tell you, maybe it's best not to do that right now. You know, right. (laughs) Yeah. Do people behave differently in different levels of court? And my understanding is there are different levels and things escalate. Are people better better behaved in higher levels of court? Or does the conflict actually escalate in an, a, an uncomfortable way? Interesting question. I mean, I think there's a reason sheriffs are present in any family law courtroom for the most part when you're appearing in person, right? Because people can get pretty hot under the collar, so to speak. Right. So 
Yeah. I've never seen security, like personally seen security tackle somebody, but I've heard of security tackling people on their way out of the courtroom or something like that. So mm. I think, like I said, I think there's a reason security sits there no matter what level of court you're in, but. Mm-hmm. Although they're, often, usually, they're usually fighting off sleep. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> they're like sit there with their hands and their vest and they're like <laughs> nodding. But they're do, they do their best. We appreciate the sheriffs. Because if there's anything I have learned, it's that in per, like real court is not as interesting as they think it's on TV. <laughs> until, it's, ever... until it's really interesting. Yeah, exactly. Until it really gets good. Yeah. Or the things that your lawyer thinks are fun and exciting, nobody else would find fun and exciting. You know, right. you're like, there was yeah. this really interesting application from the court today. And your friends are like, okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But wow, nobody, got tack- nobody got tackled. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that sounds really boring. Thank you mm-hmm. for sharing that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Although I have, I was going to say, Kim, I have been in like um, regular civil chambers. So not family law chambers, but, you know, other things like estate matters or people who are fighting over money. And it does seem to be like a much more civilized place in a weird sort of way. Like most everybody in there is a lawyer wearing a black suit and everybody's very quiet and it's very austere. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. in some ways there's also no collegiality in there at the same time that there is sometimes with the family law bar, right? So all the lawyers who are family law lawyers will go and sit and chat and talk about things in, in court and that gives it kind of a different atmosphere. So And anybody can attend these court proceedings, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So even though they're on, um, even the ones that are on the computer right now, just a regular person could log in as an observer and and take a look at what's going on in court. So that is another nice thing about being in court in in Canada is most of the time they're open proceedings that anybody can just pop in and watch. So that's uh, something that's nice for um, people who are considering being self-represented is they can just take an afternoon and go watch court if they want to. So kind of get the lay of the land. You know what to expect. Yeah. Joanna, you just mentioned that you have appeared in other types of courtrooms. So, um, and I know that you mentioned in your bio, you do a little bit of wills and a little bit of real estate. Um, Do you think it's important that a family lawyer is familiar with other areas of law or should you be looking for a specialist that's only doing family law or do you have an opinion about that? I have an opinion and I'm probably biased that it's, it's probably good for any family law lawyer or probably any lawyer in general, just to have like a pretty good general background on the other areas of law. I mean, I was fortunate to work at, I guess what we would call like a general practice on a smaller town for, you know, before I started here at Briar and McKay, but so I got to practice things like corporate commercial law, closing the purchase of a two for one pizza pasta restaurant. I did wills and estates. I did municipal bylaw trials um, for the town of Stony Plain for a couple of mm. years, which is a great, very interesting area of law. If you're ever interested in hearing about cow trials, but <laughs> animals, animals at large, <laughs> but um, so I think that general background really kind of gives a family law lawyer in particular, an idea of your client saying something and you realize that that could be an issue um, because many clients will have, you know, a will with their ex-spouse. Many clients may own a piece of property or multiple pieces of property with their ex-spouse or in their own names. Um, 
sometimes they'll have a business. And so having just a general understanding of how a real estate transaction might work or some potential tax issues that might arise or, you know, how basic structures of a corporation works and how we might, you know, kind of help that unravel, I think is a good background for family law lawyers to have. Um, that being said, there's definitely a benefit to having a lawyer that's not necessarily a dabbler, right? So <laughs> there's, um, I think, some danger out there in dabbling in certain areas and picking up a family law file here, picking up a civil law litigation file here, because you're not kind of immersed in the practice area and you're not, you know, it's not your bread and butter. You're not doing it day in, day out. So there definitely is a reality in lawyers losing skills or not developing skills as much as they might if they were specializing in it. So I think it's it's a fine balance um, in terms of making sure that you have a lawyer with the understanding that they need to really help you out. But yeah, that's I guess that's my opinion. I don't know. What uh-huh. do you guys think? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I often think of the family lawyers in some ways like the GP of of lawyers, the like a general practitioner, because you kind of have to know when you need to call in the specialists is how I think of it. Because, yeah, there are so many intersections or possible intersections. You might have criminal issues coming into it. Sometimes there's immigration issues, like you said, real estate, taxation corporate um, restructuring or valuation or just, and then, yeah, wills, estates, that whole side of things. So, um, yeah, I I think it is important to have that breadth of knowledge. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I think it could be helpful to know, like, you know, the saying, like, knowing just enough to be dangerous. Like that could be helpful as long as you're not being dangerous. What I mean is what you kind of already said, Joanna, which is it can help you flag issues that maybe you're not prepared to tackle as their lawyer, but you're like, I know that this could be an issue, so you should talk to somebody else about it. I mean, a good example is tax. Like nobody, no lawyers that I know dabble in tax. Because it's just, it's just kind of an area, probably, first of all, because I feel like if you're going to do tax, it's something that you're just going to love and do, and nobody else loves it or wants to do it. That's probably part of it. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, the Tax Act uh, gets added to every year, and it's a very large book by now. And uh, so that's just a good example where, like, okay, if you're doing corporate law, oh, you're going to restructure your share structure, there's going to be some transfers by the way, talk to an accountant or a tax lawyer because there could be some tax issues. And maybe there aren't, I don't know, but I know there's a possibility that they could. And that's, and to have that kind of idea about other areas too, like um, you said you, were, you did some municipal stuff, that there could be, that can easily, you might be aware of some issues that you might not otherwise be aware of because of doing that, so. Probably not touching family law, but. Yeah, it was definitely a great way to learn how to run a trial over a very low stakes, <laughs> like one hundred and fifty dollar fine, like, right. <laughs> you know, for letting your cat roam without a license. So <laughs> nice. Yeah, you hear but, that, Rusty? No, he's not here. <laughs> Rusty's not getting the ticket. You are, Heather. Municipal <laughs> law. I'll is- defend him. <laughs> <laughs> Municipal law is pretty interesting. I I, uh, I worked on a few files like that. I was just a neighbor to you while, when you were out there, out in a uh, little bit further in Onaway. And um, the lawyers out there, 
ended up representing a whole bunch of different summer villages and communities around there. And, uh, and I agree, it's pretty, pretty interesting uh, things that come up. Yeah, I think like, oddly, municipal bylaw trials were kind of fun in a weird sort of way, because you get to like, like I said, run a trial in an hour sometimes over an issue like um, somebody just letting their cat wander the streets. So, and going back to my experience of my witness just wouldn't say what I needed her to say. I needed her to identify this cat because otherwise you fail. If you don't ID the animal that's running around, <laughs> she wouldn't just say that it was the cat with the white bib. <laughs> no matter how many times I asked what color the cat was, <laughs> what the cat looked like, she just wouldn't tell me what I needed to know. So that was a loss on my board, Kimmer. It was a <laughs> one in the loss column. <laughs> Never forget. Never forget. <laughs> I'm glad you, know, you guys bring this up. I don't think you guys realize how little us plebes know on this topic. The like knowing what lawyer to go to for what issue and and knowing who to trust. Like even for me three months ago, I think it was both Heather and Evan I asked, is it common? for a, a, a commercial or corporate lawyer representing a family company to give advice to the daughter of the owner and also on, on family law, like help with the, the separation divorce and also help the, the other party. And I was like, this sounds weird. And like a lot of conflicts of interest, is this normal? Like why would this lawyer, corporate lawyer do this? So I think this is like a really like important conversation for us who don't know the law. Mm. I think you see a common area you see the general practitioner uh, spanning would be things like real estate, corporate commercial and family law. Uh, and partly because they're wherever they start out there oh, and, and estate planning and estate administration, because wherever they start out in one of those, that client inevitably needs, then they buy a house and they're like, well, I like you, you're my lawyer. Will you do this for me? Um, and you can see how that can spiral into the different areas. But I would also say a good general practitioner may know enough to do a, um, a bunch in any of those areas of law, but will also know their limitations of like, okay, so I can help you incorporate and manage your business, but maybe I'm not going to help you with a sale of your corporation, for example. Yeah. yeah. Or I can help you maybe draft this agreement between you and your ex-spouse, but it's been a really long time since I've been in court. So maybe I'm not the best person for you if you and your spouse are going to be going into the courtroom, right? So, yeah. and I think that's probably a good sign of whether or not, you know, the lawyer that you've contacted is a person to be trusted if they're willing to just say, hey, this is a limitation for me. Right. I don't know enough about this particular area to help you out, but I do know somebody that will. And mm -hmm. that's a good sign of a lawyer who, um, or like Evan was saying, I know that this could cause some tax implications. I can't tell you what, but here's a person to call to find out how, what kind of impact this is going to have on you. So mm -hmm. that's usually the hallmark of a, of a lawyer that's to be trusted, I would say. So, yeah. Yeah. The GP that's not going to do a knee replacement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs>
prescribe you penicillin? Yes. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Need surgery? Mm-hmm. Ah, how hard could it be? I was going to say the dentist that gives you Botox, but then I was like, wait, my dentist can give Botox. (laughs) (laughs) Failure of an example. (laughs) So people have conflicts. Do, do lawyers have conflicts amongst each other in trial? Does that impact things? Yes, I think definitely. If lawyers aren't getting along or lawyers have clashes of personality, I think it can definitely complicate a matter, um, and make it like, make it more difficult for the parties to even get to trial. You know, if the lawyers are starting to kind of brew in their conflicts between themselves and that we've definitely seen on TV Uh, that happens to Harvey all the time. His personal vendettas or other people's personal vendetta against him ruins his clients lives. True. Or ruins their opportunity to get an outcome. Yeah. Yeah. So that is probably a, um, a thing that happens on TV that does happen in real life. Maybe not as like dramatically, like, mm. you know, like Harvey is sleeping with, you know, the daughter of the business owner or something like that. <laughs> that probably doesn't happen, but <laughs> like in, a, in an ideal world, the lawyers would kind of get together and say, this is the issue that we have. This is what we need to solve. How are we going to get these parties to this place? But I think, unfortunately, that rarely happens. So... Yeah. Lawyers are human and everyone has sort of different styles and different communication styles, different approaches to things. So sometimes those things just don't line up. And it's relatively common in court. I think where you see a judge call the lawyers on it too. It's just to kind of say that, you know, they're tired of hearing of the conflict between the lawyers and let's get to the conflict between the parties. So (laughs) it's probably another good thing for lawyers to recognize is our limitations in working with certain people (laughs) before we take on a file. Yeah. I was going to ask actually you and Evan, like, what do you do when you're, um, have a file. We don't always or often get to choose who the counsel is on the other side. So how do you manage that when you've got conflict with the other person on the side of the file? I, think in, I was like, I think in extreme cases, I'll just question. decline. You know, if I know going in, this is the lawyer on the other side, I know I've had a bad experience with them before. Um, my fault or their fault. I mean, every lawyer's at fault there, you know, sometimes I'll just decline the retainer. Mm -hmm. Sometimes if there's been enough passage of time, maybe I'll say, okay, I'm a little bit more mature now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Done some, Mm -hmm. done some, you know, reflection. Maybe I'll try this again, you know, with like Mm -hmm. a fresh set of eyes. So it's probably just a matter of being prepared for dealing with that particular lawyer, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I haven't had, like, I just haven't had enough years behind me to have my blacklist of lawyers on the other side that I won't deal with. But I know other lawyers that do, where they just, if this lawyer's on the other side, I will not have anything to do with it. Um, but I do, I have had the experience where I, there was one where I took the, re, I took a retainer. And the first step was to like reach out to the other council and kind of see where the scope was for negotiating an outcome. And the conversation I had with the other lawyer 
was such that I was like, I do not want anything to do with this file at all. And it's not like he was mean or rude or anything like that. That wasn't the case, but I could just tell that, um, that lawyer's approach was just more perpetuating the conflict and it was going to have to go to court. And that was the only option. And, and just, yeah, I, I don't know how to describe it more than that, but it, and I gave the client the retainer back and said, sorry, this isn't going to work because I just wasn't prepared to deal with that for the life of that file, which, you know, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes your mental health isn't worth <laughs> the fight with the lawyer on the other side sometimes. Right. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, imagine it's difficult not to take work home with, with you. You guys are dealing with people and emotions and, and conflict and, and complicated problems. There must be a lot of that, that you take home at night and you're about to go to sleep and then something pops into your head and it's, you know, it sends you into another stratosphere. How, how do lawyers maintain their mental health and keep, keep grounded when problems are, are difficult to solve. Yeah, go ahead, Joanna. I was like a well-adjusted person would say therapy. <laughs> I'll, say, I'll let you know when I figure that out. Yeah. <laughs> I watch a lot of Real Housewives, which is like watching that kind of conflict very soothing. <laughs> um, yeah, I fortunately have a lawyer as a spouse at home. So sometimes I can go home and like rant about how unreasonable the other lawyer was and he'll at least have an understanding of how lawyers work. So um, sometimes it's just a matter of getting it off your chest in terms of how silly the other person was being or, you know, just kind of commiserating with your coworker. Sometimes I find is good for for mental health as well. But yeah, making sure that you try not to bring it home, I think is probably the easiest thing to do, set up that boundary and say that mm -hmm. <laughs> I've left the office and I've left this line of thinking at home, but, or at, yeah. at the office, not at home. Well, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I agree with you, Joanna. I, I, I think you've got to draw that boundary and like our job is to be objective as much as possible. And if you start stewing over things, um, that, that can kind of, you don't want to become emotionally involved in it whatsoever because that then you're not going to be as effective at your job yeah. i think part of it is you have to know yourself and the type of files that you can take where you have no problem just leaving it at the office and, and leaving and if they start following you home then that's maybe not the type of file that you should be taking i would say mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah like you can't always avoid that. I mean, no. <laughs> yeah, but, but yeah. Yeah. I like, I was, I was worried when I, um, when I was, a, you know, found I was going to law school, everyone always like, that's what the thing they ask you is, Oh, what type of lawyer are you going to be? As if I had any idea before I'd even started attending law school or even throughout law school, I had no idea. And I ended up doing family law just be kind of by default. And, but the answer I'd always give people was, well, I'm probably not going to do criminal or family law. And then, you know, I'm doing family law and it just turns out it's, it, um, it's a good fit for me because of my personality and I have no problem kind of compartmentalizing and keeping it separate, but other people, that's not the case. I, I know a lawyer who can't take any file having to do with cruelty to animals in any way. Right. Can't do it because it just, um, they can't keep that. Like they just get too emotionally charged about it. Mm -hmm. 
I think um, part of it too is the, it's kind of two sides of a coin. Like I remind myself what my role is in the process and that it's not my, like I don't get to determine the outcome of problems. I'm there to help solve the problem. I'm there to help guide through the process and do the best job that I can, but I don't determine the outcome. But I think that can help clients save their sanity when they go through as well, that they remember that they are the person, one of the two people that gets to determine the outcome, right? Like there's always options every step along the way. And I think clients often get to a point where they're exhausted of decision-making or they're stressed out. And I don't know, Evan and, and Joanna, if you get this, but clients will often hit that point where they come to me and they say, just sign whatever, just make decisions. I don't want to, I just don't want to decide anymore. I just trust you that you'll do what's right for me. And, um, and that's, that's exactly where the line is, right? I don't get to make those decisions. Um, the clients do. So that's kind of where my, where I keep my sanity to is remembering that line. But I think it helps clients keep their sanity too. If we remind them of that, that they're in the driver's seat, they get to make the decisions. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes they get to decide whether or not they get dragged into a courtroom, right? So um, if you make the decision not to act foolishly, um, in all likelihood, we're going to figure out a way to get this resolved. Um, But if you start stoking that conflict or acting foolishly and making decisions that maybe aren't the best, you might get dragged into a courtroom. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And I think that's when you find lawyers also starting to really get embroiled in the conflict is when they kind of forget that, that boundary between them and the client too. Right. And so that's when lawyers can be particularly difficult to deal with when they've really become entrenched in their client's position and their client's viewpoint and and the emotions of it all. So, yeah. 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 One of the challenges I face is where a client doesn't follow my advice and makes things worse. Um, because like it, it kind of comes across as a personal insult to me, <laughs> even though it's not necessarily like, it's not related to me at all. It's just, they, they're living their lives. They're don't, you know, they're not incapable or just refuse to follow the advice I give. And, but ultimately it makes my job more difficult. That's why I give the advice that I give is to, you know, make things go smoothly and help resolve things. But that ultimately ends up in us part, me and my client parting ways anyways, because it's not, it's not working. If they don't have faith in my advice, then they need a different lawyer who they have faith in their advice. Yeah. Or sometimes the, I told you so email (laughs) works. I say it much nicer than that, but told you so. Look, yeah, yeah. Uh, If you recall, I uh, stated in my letter dated that uh, this would be a consequence of you doing this. Yeah, and here we are. <laughs> but the the non defensive communication part of me and Heather that took that course would right. ask an open ended question about mm. you know how did that work out for you and. Yeah. What could you have done to avoid that? (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Future focused. Right. (laughs) This is um, one of our most, most, it's kind of a different speed than our normal episodes because this has kind of been more of a glimpse behind the curtain, if you will, of the lawyer's life versus um, you know, some of our other episodes. So I, Mm -hmm. I, uh, I hope it's, I hope it's, 
people are finding it beneficial to kind of get a glimpse as to how lawyers tick, I guess. But also, also just get, you know, the glimpse of like what goes into going to court, which yeah. um, I think you've been very helpful, Joanna, in providing that, that uh, context. Well, hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully it just wasn't my deranged brain that got us completely off topic. So no, <laughs> definitely not. It's been, and Heather, what about you? What about your experience? You also have experience being in court a lot. You don't do that anymore mm -hmm. in your prior life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. I, I just like, would like to hear from you, your thoughts about that, about the court process and, and trials and how good they are, how good they're not, what goes into it? Yeah, I mean, I guess kind of, well, first of all, I want to pick up on something that Kim had mentioned before about like the um, uh, being surprised maybe by information. Um, I mean, the way our process is set up is that that shouldn't really be happening. Like trial by ambush is not something that's particularly well looked upon by our courts. And there are processes, particularly in QB leading up to trial, um, questioning, there's a whole discovery process of disclosure of information, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, by the time you're getting to a trial, you shouldn't really be having surprises. Um, I mean, there are always things that you can't control and that will be surprising, but there shouldn't be huge issues that are coming up or information or anything like that. Um, I mean, trial and litigation absolutely has a place and a role in decision-making. Like some folks and some issues just need to go to litigation and have our courts make a decision for them. Um, but it is getting longer and longer to get there. Um, and certainly the courts are encouraging folks to use ADR processes to, and in fact, it's required now to be considered unless there's a really good and compelling reason that you're not trying mediation or collaborative law or some other ADR process before you're heading to court. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's kind of what I think about it, I guess, is <laughs> there's a role. Um, yeah, but, uh, why are courts so backed up? Like we can bring on new judges, like open up new courtrooms. Like what? Can, can we, Kim? I don't know. I'm asking. I don't know. Talk, to, talk to Justin Trudeau and Jason Kenney about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the provincial government is tightening their belt. I actually have a friend who is an accountant who works in the Department of whatever we call it, Department of Justice for the province of Alberta. Um, he's like one of he's up there somewhere dealing with these budget constraints and um, there's no money. So, I mean, that's part of it. I don't know that the solution is throw money, more money at it anyways, that may be part of it, but probably not the whole solution. I think, I think another uh, part of the problem is lack of education and lack of understanding about people's rights and mm -hmm. um, all those kind of access to justice concerns. But yeah, it's they're full because I would say inefficiency as well, which is just common in any government process or any large entity. They're inefficient just by nature, and uh, the courts do their best, but they're huge, right? Like it's a huge organization, 
Um, so you add all that together and you get backlogs. Mm-hmm. Look, it was getting so bad in criminal, Kim, that there was a Supreme Court decision that was made finally saying like, okay, this long is too long. If it takes this long to get a decision about your, your alleged crime, you're free. Yeah, yeah, because you shouldn't have to wait. And in response to that, all a whole bunch of trials that were about to get Jordaned, as we call it in the legal community, which basically meant your legal charges get thrown away, were happening in boardrooms with mm. juries socially distanced, sitting six feet apart with masks, and judges sitting in, like I think it was in some, it was like hotel ballrooms, and in one case it was like a factory or like a um, mm. warehouse or something like that. So, mm. um, yeah, I think one of the big things is like to realize that all the different players at the courthouse are sometimes paid for and appointed by different levels of government. Right. So some are provincially appointed, some are federally appointed and it's all comes from different budgets. But I think one of the big issues prior to the pandemic was a lack of clerks. Um, So if you don't have a clerk, you can't open a courtroom. And um, sometimes you need two clerks in the courtroom um, to really have it operating efficiently. You'll have, um, you know, one clerk that's listening and making sure that the recording device is going and another clerk drafting orders or something like that, right? So and handing out files to the judge. So um, in order for the court system to work, we've got these other players beyond the judges and the lawyers that, you know, need to be able to go and get that ready to go. So... Uh I think the other with like hitting on what Evan said um, for people who are maybe looking for a lawyer, like if you have a inkling that you might be able to resolve your matter without going into court, I think it's important to find a lawyer who shares that commitment with you. Right. So I've, I think a lot of um, potential or a lot of people who end up in litigation are convinced by a lawyer that this is the right way you do it. You first start by filing your statement of claim. That's how you start your divorce. Um, and there's a lot of lawyers who kind of have that mindset that in order to even start this process, we got to get into the courtroom. So if, if you have a lawyer that's saying that to you, but you have an inkling that you maybe don't have to get into a courtroom and maybe you don't have to start that litigation process right away, it's okay to look for another lawyer that maybe shares the same mindset as you, right? Is that yeah. there's a way for us to work this out. There are definitely lawyers who, I don't want to say they lack creativity, but they, but the way that they, you know, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so the way that they handle everything is court. Oh, law, family law, we're going to court. I think that's not, I hope that's becoming less and less common, but I've already ran into it where the person on the other side of this family law file was uh, we had to go to a hearing and they were on for a lot of the other matters that were being heard that day. And it, it, I started to realize, oh, this is why they weren't really getting back to me when I was like, hey, can we resolve this by consent? Because they were busy and they were going to court anyways. May as well just wait for the decision at court because that's the way that they operate. And so um, that might not always be the most helpful way to handle any conflict. And so if a lawyer, if your lawyer is just always in court all the time and they're not a criminal lawyer, then um, they're not likely going to be a lawyer that does a lot of negotiating. It seems to me anyways. 
Yeah. I've got a dumb, dumb question. I, I, I don't know if we tackled this on the podcast before, but Joanna mentioned statement of claim for a litigated process going to court. What, is this statement of claim only that process? Would we see it in any of the other processes? Yes. So you would see it to start a divorce, but you would also see a statement of claim if you had just been like sued by somebody. So, um, Kimmer, you owe some, sorry, I call Kim Kimmer because that's what her name was on the <laughs> alternate field. Um, <laughs> I like it. Um, you know, you took a hundred thousand dollars from somebody and didn't pay it back. They're going to file a statement of claim and serve you with it. So that's kind of your document that in some instances starts the court action. Yeah. It's like a technical document in different provinces. They call it different things in Alberta. We call it a statement of claim and that's in provincial court. We don't call it a statement of claim. It's just a claim. Um, but same thing. That's like the thing that starts the court process. Now, to be fair, if you're getting divorced, at some point, somebody's got to file a statement of claim. Yeah. Um, and often that's a tactic that I will use if the other person is just non-responsive. At some point, you're like, in order to get something going, you, you've got to, okay, well, we'll serve the statement of claim. And then they have to respond because then they have, they have 20 days if they're in Alberta to respond with the statement of defense. Um, but yeah, thanks for like, Kim, that is like spot on while you're here. Cause sometimes we just say things. Yeah. <laughs> That's not a dumb, dumb question at all. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But in most court matters, there's going to be some document that started the whole thing that brought everybody into that courtroom, uh, in, in that particular matter. So whether that be a claim or a statement of claim or an application, there's going to be some document that got filed with the court that said, hey, you need to respond to this and be in court on this date. So, yeah. Sorry, Heather, I interrupted you before with my question. She can't remember anymore. <laughs> um, I would kind of remember. I, to, I was thinking about Joanna's um, quote about how much a trial costs and, and financial ability and stuff and why people, um, don't necessarily, or might go the litigation route. And I've been noticing that a little bit sometimes is in offering ADR processes. I think people are hesitant that they're like, I need a decision. I'd like to use this process, but I'm worried about, paying for mediator, not resolving it and still needing to lay out the, the litigation money or just sort of like, there's not a lot of, I guess, mid range price points in the legal world for people with mid range incomes. So you need a pretty high income to be able to afford litigation or access to some money. And if you have very, very low income, there's access to programs that are free of charge, but all the folks in the middle are having to make some pretty judicious choices when with their money, when they're choosing what route to go. So, um, I guess to that, I say most cases don't end up going to trial anyway. So you may as well take a stab at resolving it out of court. Um, and chances are you're going to be able to. Um, but I think a lot of people don't know that or might not be told that when they're looking around for lawyers. So 
And I think it's also important to remember that like you can resolve certain issues at that mediation or in the collaborative process um, or in some of those ADR processes. So you can come to an agreement on this is going to be our schedule with our kids. And this is how much you're going to pay me in child support. And this is how much we're going to pay me in spousal support, but we just can't come to an agreement on this one issue. And that's significantly going to reduce the amount of time that you need when you do go into a trial is if you've got all the other issues resolved um, you're just dealing with this one, maybe my new point that you just can't come to an agreement on. That's going to save a lot of time. It's going to save a lot of, um, you know, what Heather was talking about with having to go through documents and disclosure and, um, go to questioning or discoveries. It's just going to save a lot of time. So why not try to see if you can resolve all issues except one in, you know, that sort of process. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent point, Joanna. And I, I would just add this to those two excellent points. Um, I, have a, I have a client, only one client that's ever been- You only have one client? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, pretty much. No, only one who's been this pragmatic about it, which was he looked at his finances and he looked at the situation, we were in negotiation and we're kind of at that point where, yeah, he might've won if we went to court, but who knows? Um, and the other side was not budging whatsoever. And he just said, you know, I, I can't afford to go to court on this. Yeah, this isn't what I wanted, but let's just get this done because, so that we can move on. And then hopefully things will, the relationship will improve and things will become more flexible in the future. And I think there is, it, it, there is an absolute truth that sometimes you cannot afford to disagree. Yeah. You have to just find a way and like, it's okay to agree to something that you're not happy with, because guess what? If it goes to court, you're probably not going to be happy with everything that happens there. So you can save yourself a lot of money by just agreeing to not be happy about it right now. Mm. Um, and generally when you're, when you're at the table negotiating, you've at least got scope to decide what you're going to be not be happy about. Um, <laughs> right. right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's a tactic that I hear like my spouse employ on the phone quite a bit. Like he does, you know, some employment law. So you're talking about people who get, you know, fired from their jobs and maybe didn't get paid enough by their employer. Right. And it's, are you going to pay $20,000 to me to take this to trial? Or are you going to pay this employee $10,000 more? Right. And, um, more often than not, you know, that employer will just say, well, we're probably going to save a little bit of money in legal fees and just pay this extra money up front. Right. So mm -hmm. it's more yeah. difficult to quantify when you're talking about, you know, things like time with your kids, but, yeah. um, I think and some other areas of law definitely take on that pragmatic approach you're talking about. Yeah. And there's more, I think it, it, the emotional aspect of family law can make it a little more challenging as well to be able to just cut your losses that way and say, I'd rather, because I've definitely had people say, I'd rather pay you than pay him or her. And then I would counter with, well, do you want to pay me and him or her? Because that's probably what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Right. So I, that's uh, just a little nugget. Sometimes you can't agree. You can't afford to disagree. You just got to find a way to get, to make it through so that you have something in certain, um, I, that's just the the state of the state of things right now. I think. Yeah. 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 And going back to that win loss board, Kim, I think sometimes certainty is like the biggest. Getting certainty for your client can sometimes be the biggest win, right? So, this is what you've got to 
rely on moving forward. Yeah. yeah. So Kim, you got any other questions brewing? You know, I'm just like, I'm totally biased because I hang out with ADR lawyers, like skilled in communication and non-defensive communication and all this kind of stuff. And I, you know, we're talking about court today and I'm like, when does this actually happen? Like who actually goes to court? I'm, in my brain, I know it's backed up. I've heard about this. I know it takes time, but I'm trying to figure out who are these people who end up in court because there's so many skilled family lawyers in Edmonton specifically that can work people through these issues, whether it's through limited scope or mediation or collaboration or arbitration why the heck is anybody going to court? Heather was just in court a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and she's definitely one of the ones you're talking about being skilled at communication and stuff. I was entering a resolution, actually. <laughs> that ended up resolving. So. Excellent. Yeah. I'm happy for you. Great. <laughs> it, you know, there's lawyers and then there's the lawyer's clients, Kim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oof. And then there's the other party mm -hmm. who is sometimes the bigger wild card, I would say. Is yes. You have no idea how the other spouse is or the other party in a matter is going to react. So it's cold comfort to our clients when we tell them that. But I've definitely been like, look, I, I can't control, and you and I cannot control what the other person's going to do. We just can't. And we can be reasonable and that's always the best chance of of having a successful outcome and will will work in the long run but that doesn't mean the other person is going to be reasonable mm -hmm. yeah and then, just... and then sometimes that ticks people off because they're like well i'm being reasonable and and, and i'm making concessions and <laughs> the other person is just taking advantage and being rude and etc cetera, etc cetera. what am i paying you for yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> so. Well, so we, I guess we talk about it as if like, oh man, if everyone just understood what we were saying, <laughs> then no one would ever go to court. But this is, it's not that simple. This is what I tell people when they contact me. So random people call me all the time about, you know, processes and lawyers and all this kind of stuff. And I basically tell them the, the wonderful lawyers that we have in Edmonton will work them through these ADRs and there's no reason to go to court. And I'm just positioning it that court's not an option anymore because, um, you know, maybe they'll believe me and uh, we can get, uh, you know, people off on the right start with their lawyers. You know, another Briar McKay uh, lawyer we had on here talked to us about arbitration, if you recall. And it was great, but for whatever reason, arbitration is such a hard sell. It is really hard. I talk about arbitration all the time with almost all of my clients that have a conflict in family law and talk about how it's a good option and the pros and cons of it. And even when my clients want to do it, uh, then I would run into the obstacle of the other lawyer being totally against it. So I don't know what the answer is, Kim. Sales. We got to, it's a sales job. I, I can tell you that because I'm in sales. <laughs> if I could somehow make it so like I get a client and then I make sure that the other party ends up in like Heather's office or Evan's office. If I could somehow just like push them into the other person's office, it would be, uh -huh. life would be great, but <laughs> uh -huh. Uh -huh. 
not how it works. Yeah. No. Well, with this podcast, maybe we can change that and, and help people get connected with the lawyers who are really working for their clients, trying to resolve issues without uh, taking that expensive route that, as you guys described, is really an uncomfortable process from start to finish. Yeah. Kim, do you have anything, anything else on your mind? Oh, it's great. Heather? Nope. I'm tapped out as well. Joanna, was there anything that we did not cover that you were just dying to cover? No, I feel like we covered everything on my list and more. So I guess there was one I wanted to broach with you, but it's, but it'll have to be for another time. And that was, I noticed you, do you still do a state administration? Um, yes, I do. Um, but mostly just because I'm covering the maternity leave for the lawyer at Briar McKay who does that okay. work. <laughs> <Great. laughs> so, um, yes. that, is an, that is an area of law that does often go to court. Well, in fact, every estate that needs probate goes to court. So, right. <laughs> yes. Right. right. So maybe that's a, that's a topic for another day because that's, that's one of the most common uh, questions that or issues that people run into where they need a lawyer is, okay, so-and-so died, I've cut out of the will, what's going on? Or I'm the executor, what do I do? Um, yeah, well, if you want me to back on to <laughs> give that advice or let me know. There you go, Heather. Sounds good. Okay. I'm back to talk about the state administration. Fantastic. Or I'll find you a lawyer who likes that line of work and can talk your ear off about it. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing brings out the best of people like somebody, like their parents dying or something. It seems that people are always fighting about that. Yeah, it's true. Nothing brings out the worst in people like a dead person. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, Joanna, thanks so much. It's been great to have you on. Thank you for letting me live out my dream of being on a podcast. So. Oh, our pleasure. <laughs> Glad to be. Us, yeah. Glad to be of service. <laughs> well, this has been another episode of Access to Justice. Thanks for listening or watching, however you've joined us today. If you have any questions you'd like us to address on the podcast, send an email to access to justice podcast at gmail.com that's access number two justice podcast at gmail.com and we'll do our best to get you an answer in an upcoming episode bye any information in this video is general information only and is not nor is it intended to be legal advice watching this video does not create a lawyer-client relationship you should always seek the advice of a lawyer or other qualified professional for advice regarding your individual situation while we take care to ensure that the information contained in this video is accurate and up-to-date, we make no warranties or representations as to the suitability, completeness, or accuracy of the information contained in this video. Any reliance you place on the information is at your own risk. Kahane Law Office, Merrick Law, Heather Malarick Professional Corporation, Evan Clark Professional Corporation, Evan Clark, Heather Malarick, and any guests will not be responsible nor liable in any way for any content, including but not limited to any errors or omissions in the content, or for any loss or damage of any kind incurred as a result of any content communicated in this video, whether by Evan Clark, Heather Malarick, or by a third party. Kim McDonald is a financial advisor with Raymond James Limited. Information provided is not a solicitation, and although obtained from sources considered reliable, is not guaranteed. The view and opinions contained in this media are those of Kim McDonald, not Raymond James Limited. Securities-related products and services are offered through Raymond James Limited, member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Raymond James advisors are not tax advisors, and we recommend that clients seek independent advice from a professional advisor on tax-related matters. Graceful fingers
intertwined. 